Welcome to Business Divorce Roundtable, Episode 7, Conflict in the Family-Owned Business, a conversation with Professor Benjamin Means. Hi, I'm Peter Mahler, business divorce lawyer and partner at Farrell Fritz in New York City. The family-owned business plays a huge part in American life. According to a recent Forbes magazine article, over 90% of U.S. businesses are family-owned or controlled, and family businesses generate over 50% of U.S. gross national product. Most family businesses don't survive the transition from first to second or third generation. In many instances, it's because of strife within the family, pitting parent against child, sibling against sibling, nephew or niece against uncle or aunt, and so on, in what can become when the dispute lands in court an intensely emotional and difficult business divorce. In this episode, I interview Ben Means, a rising young assistant professor of law at the University of South Carolina Law School and an expert in the field who has published a series of scholarly articles examining the special problems of the family-owned business and the legal framework for resolving disputes within it. Ben is a Dartmouth College graduate who went on to Michigan Law School in a prestigious judicial clerkship on the Second Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. He then practiced corporate law and litigation with a major New York law firm before taking a faculty position at South Carolina, where he's taught business law since 2008. Professor Means' scholarship focuses on governance of closely held business organizations with a particular focus on family-owned businesses. Several years ago, my New York Business Divorce blog featured a two-part online interview of Ben about an intriguing article of his published in the William & Mary Law Review called Non-Market Values in Family Businesses. The article explored legal theory and used social science in support of his thesis that courts should give greater weight to family values in adjudicating corporate dissolution and other disputes among shareholder members of the same family. You can find the interview with links to Ben's publications at nybusinessdivorce.com by using the search terms Ben Means. In this podcast interview, we revisit some of the themes covered in the blog's interview, as well as other topics related to conflict in the family-owned business. I'm also very pleased to be joined in the interview by Matt Donovan, a fellow litigator and comrade-in-arms at Farrell Fritz, who is a veteran of many a business divorce case, including disputes involving family businesses. So please listen in as we interview Ben Means. I hope you'll find it interesting. Ben, welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. It's great to be here. Peter, Matt, I'm glad to participate. Matt and I have been following your work for a long time, and uh, you and I, I think, did a, a online uh, interview on my blog some years ago, and I'm really excited now about having the opportunity to talk with you on this podcast and explore some of the same ideas that we explored on our interview some years ago, but also new areas of inquiry that you've undertaken since then. I remember being very interested in your work, particularly in the area of shareholder oppression. And then you, in a series of articles that you've published in various law journals, you've been focusing on disputes in the family-owned business. And I remember the first article I saw of yours in that field, I remember thinking that, gee, I'd I'd never seen anything like this before. I think that's because there isn't anything like that before. Is that right? Well, there's nothing new under the sun. I'd like to think there's a novelty in what I'm working on, but there have been people such as Bob Thompson who've written about family business conflicts in the broader context of shareholder oppression And what I'm trying to do is really isolate the family dynamics, 
bringing into legal scholarship some things that folks have been talking about in management or otherwise in the business literature. There's even a family business journal, so that so that knowledge is out there. It just not hasn't been connected with legal scholarship. So Ben, I was introduced to your work uh, back in I think it was 2013 with your article "Non-Market Values in Family Businesses," and it it just so happened that Peter and I happened to be involved in a pretty big family-owned business dispute case here in New York. The first thing that I was struck, you know, by your article and then in some of the other literature that I had later seen was just the the, the overwhelming prevalence of the family-owned businesses, particularly in the space that Peter and I tend to practice in, which is the closely held business divorce space where, you know, a lot of the disputes and businesses involved are are family-owned. Uh, but I was just blown away by some of those statistics. Can you tell us, uh, let us know about some of those? I think that's right. And, and what is surprising about it, at least from my standpoint as an academic, is that there is an extensive corporate law literature, but it is disproportionately focused on the publicly traded corporations, the, the larger scale businesses. And there's really not much out there on closely held businesses, let alone family owned businesses. So there does seem to be a gap between the reality, which is that most economic organizations are these typically small mom and pop type shops and the sorts of things that people write about. And for that matter, that legislators tend to think about when they're enacting business legislation. So I do think there's a gap, whether it's 80 percent precisely, it's it's most of them. That's right. I think that was the, the number that stuck out to me the most was the 80% of all U.S. businesses being family. And one thing that I found to be interesting that is intimately connected with that huge statistic is that the, the, the survival rate that is into the next, second, third, fourth generation for family-owned businesses, on the other hand, is so dismal. Uh, isn't that right? I'm going to disagree with you there just a tiny bit. Uh-huh. Um, I, I do think that there is a problem with business succession. And I know from following Peter's blog that that often comes up in your work, that if you're going to have a family business dispute, it's often going to arise when it's time for a generational transfer. And so for that reason, it's not all that surprising to see that it's unlikely that a business is going to manage that transition successfully multiple times. So there's you know, the statistic that 30% survived to the second generation and only 13% survived to the third and what 3% survived to the fourth, something like that. So, so far I'm agreeing with you, but you know, on the other hand, you got to keep in mind, most businesses are going to fail. So there's nothing that's special about a family business in that regard. So it shouldn't be surprising that most businesses don't go anywhere. Ben, is that, are those statistics business failures or simply a change in structure or ownership? In other words... Exactly, uh, exactly. That's, that, that was going to be the, the other critique I have of that statistic, is it, at least to my knowledge, does not distinguish a sale of the business, which ends family ownership from a you know, catastrophic litigation that leads to bankruptcy. Both of those would count as a non-survival, but the first outcome may actually be the appropriate one. And, and look, I, I write about family businesses, and I'm to some extent in their corner, but on the other hand, there are a lot of situations where the right outcome is to sell it. You don't have a competent or interested person in the next generation. You're looking at disputes or just the market value. The timing is right. You can sell it now at a great value, or you hold on and 
you're not diversified and who knows what happens. So I don't view selling a family business as a bad thing necessarily. I take your point and I have seen similar criticism of that 30-13-3 statistic. But let's just assume that there is some you know, drop off in success rate as the generations move forward in a family business, whether those statistics are correct or not. But assuming there is some drop off, it seems to me that there's a role there for the family business lawyer, uh, perhaps not the litigator, but maybe the folks on the corporate side to assist in improving those success rates. Finding a way to transition to the next generation is crucial. If if you're going to maintain family ownership, nepotism is kind of a pejorative term. But if the notion is that we want to have the next generation assume leadership responsibilities, there's just got to be a mechanism for training the next generation, for motivating them, and for ensuring that they have the right kind of credentials to be respected within the business and with their customers. Ben, long before I started reading your articles, I had an intuitive sense that there was something different about these disputes that I've been handling in family-owned businesses. From my perspective, it was it was really the intensity of the dispute, the intensity of the litigation, the intensity of the feelings, the lesser degree of business sense that was brought to bear in making decisions about litigating, not litigating, settling. Then I read your stuff, and you seem to put all of it in a, in a theoretical framework that made some sense to me. What's different from the theoretical standpoint, if that's the right word even, about the origin of disputes in the family-owned business and how we should approach them? As I think you've intuited and have experienced in your practice, and I know we've talked about this, the sort of Shakespearean levels of dysfunction that can arise, where family emotions are involved, there's a kind of a feedback loop between the family and the business. So if family relationships are strong, if you have the kind of trust and loyalty and mutual support you would expect, that has advantages for the business. You can operate with less formality. You can rely on family to get things done and to have the business business and the family's best interests at heart. So all of that is the advantage of family business. But the flip side of it is that when those relationships go bad, if there's family feuding, if there are rooted in childhood even these these antagonisms, they can play out in the business sphere that is supposed to be governed by economic rationality. And suddenly it's no longer about merit. It's no longer about even who's objectively right. It's who, who can hurt the other person more. There was a case you blogged about a while back, I don't recall the name, but but what I recall about it, what, what I was struck by is that the daughter who was disputing with her parents was unwilling to take the number because it was going to mean her brother would get the business. She didn't object to the valuation. She just didn't want to see her brother come into power. And that's That strikes me as, as the sort of the classic family business problem. So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. Do you think I'm understating or overstating the problem with family businesses? Not in the least. A very large portion of what Matt and I do in the business divorce area is the family-owned business, and I'd say more and more as the years roll by. From a litigator's perspective, it seems that the courts, although a good judge, who an experienced good judge, will always recognize that a family is involved, whether it's 
father, son, brother, sister, etc. And they may put a little more interest and energy into recognizing the value of trying to settle the dispute out of court because there's more at stake than simply the business. There's a, there's a family at stake. That's pretty much as far as it goes. And it doesn't seem that the law is very well equipped to make any sort of a distinction between these disputes that involve family versus non-family. The added difficulty of dealing with a, you know, live litigation involving a family, you know, a dispute between members of a family, there just doesn't seem to be any any mechanisms available to us lawyers that recognize these disputes as something different and that offer any real solutions for the for the higher level of, of difficulty. And, and again, maybe it's just a matter, maybe you can just chalk it up to, well, that's human nature and there's nothing you can do about it. I agree with you on that. It's uh, In my scholarship, I've been exploring the possibility of finding either different legal regimes or different approaches to existing legal regimes that might give some greater peace in the context of family business conflict, but it is imperfect at best because family businesses are governed by the same general set of laws as any other business. And there's, you know, at some point there's a limit to what a court can do to resolve something that by the time it gets to court is probably pretty pernicious. I mean, I like to blame, uh, I have some bias here, but I like to blame the the corporate lawyers, the transactional lawyers, the lawyers that get involved in setting up these businesses, assuming there are lawyers on the scene at the time, of course, many businesses are set up even without the assistance of a lawyer. And I do think that in general with the LLC revolution, I see the problems getting of, of the family-owned business getting worse because there are so many family-owned businesses and non-family-owned businesses as well. But I think it's especially prevalent on the family-owned business side where we're seeing businesses that are set up without any real meaningful organic documents, a shareholders agreement, a partnership agreement, and, or an operating agreement. And as the number of business entities in the LLC category grow and grow and grow, the default rules that govern LLCs seem to me even more amenable to trapping in minority members. And, and when you have now a greater incidence of trapped in family members, I just see that as a recipe for trouble. I was going to ask you about that, whether you saw a difference as we moved towards the, the LLC form, which in some ways is arguably better because it is more receptive to contractual modification. So to the extent families have distinctive needs, there's more room for private ordering. But I completely agree with you that what we're actually likely to see is going to be the same absence of contractual negotiation and, and simply more of a locked-in investment. Right. And, and then also in, in the family setting where you have an LLCs of what have only been around for 20 or so years, but as they age out and you have first generation members of LLCs dying, I suppose, if they don't have an agreement, that membership interest, you know, it loses its membership status. And that seems like another portion of the recipe for trouble, as opposed to a traditional business corporation where the shares carry with them, whether, you know, through inheritance or otherwise, you know, they continue to carry all of the rights of stock ownership, including voting rights and et cetera. I guess that means more work for Matt and I in years to come, right? <laughs> Actually, on, I think on this point, I pulled a quote from your article, The Contractual Foundation of Family Business Law, on this very point, that is, where I think you were sort of making the argument that in the family 
family-owned business context, the, the weight and or admissibility of certain unwritten evidence should should be significant. And, and the quote, is it goes something like this. It's, you say, the nexus of contracts that defines a family business includes the party's various unwritten contracts, connections, and understandings, all of which bear upon the party's expectation. Accordingly, evidence of oral agreements and implicit understandings should be admissible. I mean, can you give in your research some examples of that where, where a, you know, a judge or a court happened to lean that way on the, on the unwritten evidentiary side? Let me try to answer that. But, but first, as I do, I want to acknowledge a disagreement here. I don't know if you and I disagree, but I think Peter and I disagree a little bit because New York's rule, which is sort of distinctive, excludes oral operating agreements in LLCs. So you got to write it down if you want to have something other than the default rules. And that strikes me as a mistake for the, for the, the reasons you were, you were reading back something I wrote, but for those reasons, because I think especially in a family business that relies on trust and where the parties are especially unlikely to write anything down. If you exclude oral evidence, you are essentially excluding what may be valuable evidence, circumstantial evidence of what the parties intended. And so you're not giving them their own bargain. I'm just a bigger cynic than you, Ben. I I take a dimmer view of human nature, perhaps. I'm I'm only half in jest here. I, I have expressed disagreement with that position from the standpoint of a lawyer who deals with these problems in court and ultimately has to be thinking in terms of witnesses who are going to get up on the stand and either testify truthfully or untruthfully about undocumented communications, conversations. So I think there are, there's a cost as well as a benefit to adopting a regimen where oral agreements are are recognized. And I know that many states, uh, Delaware included, recognize uh, oral operating agreements for LLCs. I believe it's also reflected in the Revised Uniform LLC Act. If there is a trend, if there's a movement, it is in favor, at least in the LLC area, there is a movement in favor, I believe, of recognizing the validity and enforceability of oral LLC agreements. But New York is, well, New York, <laughs> New York hasn't changed a, a gosh darn thing in its LLC law for decades. So I don't have, I don't hold out much hope that they're ever going to do that. Well, look, you're clearly right that there is a trade-off and that admitting oral evidence is going to invite, if not fraud, then at least self-serving recollections about what the deal was. So you got to be careful about that. And even if the court ultimately is going to get to the right answer, if you're going to bring in that sort of testimony, it's going to increase litigation costs and unsettle expectations to some degree. So there's there's no perfect answer here. I guess my sense is that, especially if you're talking about a typical family-owned business, it's just so unlikely to be subject to the kind of lawyering and written understandings that you'd want that it seems unfair, at least where there's clear circumstantial evidence that would support a different understanding to, to leave that out. So Ben, what, what are some of the classic examples of formula leading to disputes and litigation in the family-owned business? Well, there's sibling conflict. There are There's the, the father, typically the father, setting up conflict between sons as to who's going to be ready to take over the business. There's, so I'm talking about succession, there's also problems of the, the patriarch who lingers around the office too long and doesn't hand over control because of a fear of loss of status in the family. 
You mean the, the the father who sits down his his lawyers and says, and when he gets ready to uh, family to to do some family uh, business planning, he he begins by saying, "If I die, then." <laughs> well, Sumner Redstone's succession planning, and he's the the head of essentially Viacom and CBS. His whole succession plan was, "I'm going to live forever." Right. Well, he's in his mid nineties, so he's on his way, but it seems like there's trouble there because now he's physically incapacitated, seemingly, arguably mentally incapacitated, and now without any effective succession planning, you've got a dispute between his daughter and the family trust, and then you've got the Sumner Redstone's handpicked CEO, and it's just a, a mess. And it's not just the family that's impacted, it's all the outside shareholders and all the various stakeholders of that business, and it's just failure to, to plan. Right. You know, you you have a, and I think it's your term, a great term, you know, that describes these conflicts that family business owners bring to the business and actually vice versa, bring home after work, which is you call spillover conflicts. Is that right? Right. Thinking particularly of conflicts in the family that spill over into the business. Right. Uh, although it could go either way, of course, if you're the business is suffering, maybe that makes for some awkward dinner table conversations and that sparks conflict and comes back to the business. So there there really is that feedback loop. But what seems significant about it is that in a family business, you may have conflict that really doesn't directly have anything to do with the operation of the business. The fundamentals can be sound, but the people just aren't getting along. There are cases where the child marries out of the religious faith, and that leads to a freeze-out. What's interesting to me, I mean, what, is, what does that uh, mean for us you know, lawyers? I mean, what is our role in that? Is that is it, do we need to put on you know, sort of the psychologist hat for the day and try to sort these conflicts out and, and say, you know, sit our clients down and say, well, listen, this is really some baggage hangover that you have with your brother from back in high school. And um, it's really not related to the business you're now running with 300 employees uh, who depend on a paycheck, et cetera. I mean, what, in your view, is it our role to sort of sort that out from them? Or, or how should courts and judges consider these in this sort of broader perspective? Well, in a moment, I may turn that question back around to you, since I know this is something you confront in a, in a way that I don't anymore. But I can tell you from the cases I litigated when I was still in practice, just my, my general sense of it, that if you're a lawyer and you're being paid to handle a litigation, there is a limit to what you can do as a psychologist or, or a counselor. At the same time, I do think there is some role that, that a lawyer can play in trying to, on a dollars and cents basis, help a client to appreciate what matters and what doesn't matter. At the end of the day, if a client wants to pay your hourly rate to to wage war, well, you know, as long as there's a legitimate claim, I suppose you do that. But I'd like to think that at least some of the time you can explain how much a case is going to cost, what the upside is, what the downsides are, including family dynamics, and, and maybe push for a more reasonable resolution if that's available. Things you can do to try to de-escalate. To, to cite one example, there, there's a, a guy I know here in South Carolina who handles family business litigation, and he, he described one case where his side, the, they had to go to court, so they filed a fairly bare-bones complaint, and it laid out the causes of action and, and some of it, but it left out the other 30 pages of specific and embarrassing allegations. And so the notion was, okay, here's where we're going. 
we're going to email you the the full complaint, which we're getting ready to to file. Now let's see if we can have a conversation about this. So there's, I think there are ways that lawyers can try to find off ramps for litigation when that's possible. But again, you know, you're not a counselor, you're not a psychologist, you're you're a litigator. If it comes to that, that's what you're going to do. You're thinking about trial. But these cases are, you know, sort of litigation on steroids because of all the things that, uh, you know, you've mentioned. You talk, you use the phrase an off-ramp uh, to litigation, which, of course, in my mind, gets you into mediation. Is this an area that, uh, Ben, you've been looking at as well, uh, mediation and the family uh, business dispute? I wouldn't say I've done a lot of research on it. I come to it just as a practical matter with a little bit of skepticism because in my own limited and increasingly dated experience as a litigator, I recall that clients in the heat of battle generally weren't very interested interested in mediating disputes until some blood had been drawn. So my own sense is that if mediation and alternative dispute resolution is going to have a chance, at least until you get closer to trial, it's much better to do it before anything gets filed. Now, if, if somebody's stealing money from the business or you've got to essentially run in and try to get an injunction to prevent assets from being looted, yeah, that's one thing, and they just don't have any choice. But if the family is dealing with some conflict in terms of how the assets of the business are going to be allocated or what, whether the business is going to be sold or how a succession is going to work, that strikes me as the time to get a business mediator, maybe not even a lawyer, but just somebody who can earn the trust of the parties and sit down and, and go through the alternatives and get them to work together. And they may not a- agree, but at least they, in the end, but at least if they feel they've been heard and their view has been given serious weight, that may be a way of reducing the need for litigation. Now, that's just my sense. I mean, do, do you view mediation as something that can be effective early on? I do. Particularly useful before litigation breaks out, if you, if you can manage that, because once the litigation breaks out, everyone is throwing brickbats at everyone else. And, exactly. And, and, and you know, the, the, the tensions uh, ratchet up. But I, I, I have, over the years, become a bigger and bigger fan of mediation, whether it's before or during a litigation. In the hands of a good mediator, I, I do think it can save everyone a lot of grief and time and money. So it is something that I like to talk to clients about. And, and it's even better when the judge takes the lead and tries to push the parties into the mediation because, you know, neither side likes to be perceived as the one pushing for mediation because some people think it's a sign of weakness, which I disagree with, but that's the way people perceive it. Right. And I think, um, you know, when when sitting down at the mediation table or whatever form of alternative dispute, you know, resolution you might be engaged in, and I think I picked up on some of this from your work, Ben, is the importance of really you know, making sure you're fully aware of all the parties involved, I should say players involved, and you know giving them sort of due consi- consideration for, for the, the roles which they played. For example, you know, if you have the founder of the business on his way out, he might be interested simply not so much in money, but in in a legacy. And there are ways to preserve that in in resolving disputes. And for the children who are taking on the the, the business, uh, taking the helm, they want to be recognized for their accomplishments. And there are ways to compensate them for that that may not involve money. And 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 then you know, and then you have your sort of outside 
non-managing family member who may just want to see a payday. And so I think there's there are ways you you can satisfy all the different players, but only if you you know take full consideration of of what their wants really are in the, in the broader perspective. Sure, and and uh, I should pick up on, on one thing you said there in particular. You mentioned the non-managing sort of outside family member. You'd asked before about the sources of conflict. I think that's a huge one, and I I should have mentioned it before, so I'm glad you brought it up. One of the the biggest sources of conflict in a family business is you've got, let's say, roughly half the family actively working for the business, drawing salaries for their efforts, generating value for for the business. Then you've got the perspective of the outside owners who are looking for some dividends, for some kind of regular return on investment. So they see these large salaries being paid and they resent it and they want to see some of that money come out of the business. But equally, those who are working for the business resent the perspective of people who are sitting around doing nothing and expect, even though they are have inherited their stake and haven't done a day's work for the business, they want to be paid. So you've got two, you know, as far as it goes, legitimate perspectives that are bound to clash absence of real efforts to try to, as you say, find a, a mutually agreeable solution. I think that you really put your finger on probably 50% or more of these family business disputes that involve intergenerational disputes, particularly where there's no written agreement in place. There's There was no forethought. There was no planning agreements entered into that planned for, well, planned for those circumstances. And, and, and so I always blame, I always blame the parents, not the kids. <laughs> Well, I've talked to to parents. One of the things I try to do when I get a chance is to talk to family business owners, and they worry about this stuff, at least I think responsible business owners do, whether they come up with a good solution. Matt, in in the the outline you circulated for this, this conversation, you mentioned the Carnegie conjecture, this notion that wealth deadens talent. Well, the family business owners I've talked to are well aware of that, and they worry, how how am I going to give my children appropriate advantages in life and not turn out people who don't understand the the importance of work and aren't motivated to achieve on their own? That's, That's a difficult question. I mean, do you have any theories as to why the Carnegie conjecture is is seems to be so so common? To some extent, there's this concept of regression to the mean. So if you have some person with extraordinary entrepreneurial ability and work ethic and intelligence, the odds that that person's children are going to be similarly talented, I want to say it's small, but there, there's no reason to think that just because you're related to somebody, you have you share that person's genius. Uh, if I can give a, a plug for my wealth inequality art, article, to some extent, from a social perspective, that's not a bad thing. I think there is a social problem if you could have a Vanderbilt family amass a vast fortune and then for hundreds of years continue to perpetuate that wealth across generations. I think that is a social problem, and you want to see merit rise in each generation, whether it's the Vanderbilts or others. So without overstating the point, I'm not at all troubled by the notion that 100 years later, the wealth has gone on and there are new talents. And you, you get the Zuckerbergs and you get you know, the high-tech entrepreneurs and they make their fortunes. I think I'm ambivalent about the notion of a family business that perpetuates itself and vast wealth across generations. I think there's value if parents can teach children entrepreneurial values and can convey a business that the, the children then assume responsibility for and provide 
value to society. I think all of that is good, but I'm not in favor of the perpetuation of wealth. And so if it dissipates because there's less talent, good. Well, it could, yes, I suppose, though, it could dissipate just because its holders are squandering it as opposed to being, say, philanthropic about it. But yes, I take your point. Ben, one of the things I, I love about the body of work that you've created in the area of family businesses is sort of the diagnostics of it. You know, you've really, for me anyway, diagnosed what goes on and what can go wrong with the family-owned business and why family-owned businesses generate the kinds of disputes that they generate. But I'm still in a quandary as to what, you know, we as lawyers can do about it, what we can tell judges that judges ought to do about it. I mean, is there, if there's a problem, is there a solution? Well, that's a a big question. I'll give you where I am now in terms of an answer. I, I think one direction we ought to go is in the direction of using contract law as a concept to make some progress here. I have a lot of disagreements with the law and economics movement in general and some of the rational choice assumptions they make because I think that real people are more complicated than those models make room for. But one thing that strikes me as incredibly valuable about it, and what I'm referring to here is the notion that a business is essentially a set of contractual relationships among the various factors of production. So if you're looking at a business, it's not a person. It can be a person for constitutional purposes in some contexts. But essentially, it is just a bunch of individuals who have entered into contractual relationships to achieve a shared purpose, to make money. And when you start to look at it that way, as a voluntary economic relationship governed by contract, you can look at families that way as well. Entering a marriage is a kind of voluntary bargain entered into to achieve shared purposes, subject to some degree to private ordering in other respects, bound by fiduciary obligation. Look at families and households that way. So taking a while to get to the point, but the the point is that the contract gives you a language where you can talk about families, you can talk about marriages, households, and businesses and see how they're related and thereby connect marital bargains and household bargains with business bargains. If there's a family business dispute, it may not just be about the business. It may be about the married couple that owns the business. That's a struggle. I'm sure that's something that you encounter. If you've got a married couple that owns a business and they get divorced, now you're dealing with marital divorce law and you're dealing with business law. And those things are very different legal regimes. There's a lot of conflict there. But maybe where the law could move is toward a greater recognition of contractual private ordering across those categories. So you you have a premarital agreement and you have a shareholder agreement. Those are similar mechanisms for allocating risk, for allocating assets under certain future circumstances. And those things ought to be thought of together, smoothing contractual interpretation across different areas. It's funny you say that because I hardly ever dealt with a business divorce involving, you know, divorcing husband and wife. Uh, in my area, the family business disputes have always been either intergenerational or between siblings or between cousins. Or mm-hmm. When you bring matrimonial law into the picture, you now have another set of rules that overlays, and I think that's sort of where you're going with that. But in these other situations, you don't have that overlay. Well, what about trust law or you know, other forms of inheritance? I don't know if 
you've confronted that, but I would argue, I, I would take a capacious view of family law and say that if you're dealing with a trust that governs the distribution of business assets to various family beneficiaries, and the trust has its own governance arrangement and its own set of fiduciary obligations, that's part of the picture. It is, and, 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 and coincidentally, I just finished such a case involving uh, a sibling dispute who inherited collectively hundreds of millions of dollars worth of real estate in a series of single-purpose entity, you know, owned by a series of single-purpose entities, each of which had, you know, vanilla, plain vanilla operating agreements. And they even had, I think, some tiebreaker provisions in them. In other words, they, they, they afforded co-equal management rights to the to the two siblings who obviously did not get along well together after or the parents passed on. You know, when I look back over the arc of that matter, and they, they were very sophisticated trusts set up by the, by the parents, but they just never came to grips with the fundamental issue of having two siblings who really couldn't get along. So just putting them in the position of having co-equal say over this very large estate or the assets that were uh, in the estate, it didn't add anything. It didn't provide any path to solution. And there's no, no tiebreaker mechanism? Well, there was, but then the, the tiebreaker, I, I can't go into the details of sure. it, but for, for reasons, therefore, I won't explain, the, the tiebreaker mechanism was just not effective. Uh, it just seemed to me that the parents sort of had a, a blind faith that my children will get, will, will get along. Uh, they'll be forced to get along, therefore they will get along, and everything will be copacetic. If those were the expectations, time and again I've seen them you know, not fulfilled. We seem to run up against the, you know, the inclination of, of family members in their business arrangements to think of their agreements among each other as based on, you know, blood and honor and trust and a handshake is a handshake. And, and the idea of, you know, somebody bringing a lawyer to the table is itself offensive oftentimes. Oh, I get that. And to further answer your question about you know, where can the law go, what can lawyers do, I think that that is an important but challenging task to get your clients to appreciate the need for some form of business legal planning. But if there's any way to get the family to understand the need for some minimal lawyering, some preparation of written agreements that will provide guidelines for future generations. You want to work around the concept of trust. It's not about anyone not trusting anyone else. It's about ensuring that your vision is understood and can be perpetuated. If, if you don't take the time to put down your values, how can you expect the next generation to understand it? Or maybe you look at it from a business perspective. Why do you want to waste people's time and money when they should be focusing on the business, trying to fit, figure out a business succession when you can document it now and provide a clear mechanism for people who don't want to continue. Well, I think in some ways the family business is is the victim of the same phenomenon that, uh, that afflicts non-family businesses, which is that businesses start out very small. They don't have, the owners don't want to spend the money, don't have to spend the money on that type of planning. And then by the time the business starts to flourish, perhaps interests have already started to diverge and it becomes more and more difficult as time passes on to put together agreements. Now, if you have in the first generation a, a strong leader in the family who has the foresight, I mean, that's the critical person. That If that person, either on their own or with the proper counseling, can be brought to understand that you prepare for the 
future, to prepare for the next generation. Now is the time. Don't don't leave it for them till after you die. Now is the time for you to take a strong hand here, bring in the right advisors, bring in the family, sit down, have a family powwow, and really sort it out. And it's and I can't imagine it's easy, but I don't I don't uh, see another solution. I'm I'm depressing myself. I don't know if you guys. I'm starting to get depressed yeah. listening to this, and we're almost making it sound uh, hopeless. And I know it's not hopeless, but but there is a sense that the real solutions lie not at the you know in what people like Matt and I do, which is you know cleaning up the mess after it's already occurred, but is at the planning stage, at the early stage. And I think it's up to the the the, the business advising lawyers and accountants. It's really going to be up to them to do something about this and educate their clients, their family-owned business clients, that there is uh, the need for that type of planning and you need to do it early on. Don't wait until it's too late. We certainly tend to see the, the examples of family businesses that go wrong. You litigate them. I, I read the cases. I read your wonderful blog and if a business is going right it's not going to make the news it's not going to be a litigated case you'd think so so maybe we're depressing ourselves needlessly so ben you you're in your writings and I, and I'm probably not doing justice to all of them you, know, you focused on what you've called family or non-market values in the family business you focused on contractual freedom and the family business what's next for you what, what are you going to be looking at next well I'm working on a project now on publicly traded corporations that are family controlled if you look at the s p 500 it's something like a third of those businesses are family controlled so it's not just the mom and pops. They're actually very large corporations with significant family ownership. And that strikes me as an interesting topic. And of course, globally, that's something that's disproportionately large businesses are controlled usually by a family. But in the United States, the typical public corporation has widely dispersed ownership. And that's what people tend to write about. But I want to look at those that significant subset of public corporations that have family ownership and try to understand that dynamic, which which I think is similar. I don't think there's a lot that's necessarily different in the Redstone family dealing with Viacom and CBS that would be any different than a smaller scale business that's privately held. But there are implications. There's, for one thing, public corporate law applies For another thing, they're outside investors whose interests are involved. And because the stock is is traded, you'd expect to see market valuations reflect the the value of family ownership. So that's that's a project I'm working on now. Well, that's that's fascinating. I mean, I think my impression is in in that realm, the problem is not for lack of lawyering. I mean, if you look at the Redstone family saga that's unfolding now, I mean, you have to assume that there are many, many, many millions of dollars spent on on lawyers over a long period of time putting together the corporate structures that are now starting to bleed. That's certainly true, although you have, with Sumner Redstone, as you do in smaller scale businesses, a very stubborn, opinionated business owner who is may have access to the best, most sophisticated legal advice money can buy, but may or may not choose to accept, may choose to take the view that he's going to live forever and doesn't need to engage in a meaningful succession. So I think that's true, and I think that there are certainly aspects of that dispute that will involve more intensive learning than you might get in a smaller scale business, but a lot of seemingly a lot of the same issues. 
Well, Ben, I look forward to reading that article, and, and I expect to be reading many more articles from you in the future. So thank you so much for sharing your insights on family-owned business, and I hope that we'll have a chance to do this again. That was Professor Ben Means on Conflict in the Family Business. As I mentioned earlier, you can learn more about Ben's scholarship concerning the law and family businesses by going to my online interview of Ben on my New York Business Divorce blog. That's nybusinessdivorce.com and using the search terms Ben Means. While you're on the website, if you're not already a subscriber, please consider becoming one, which simply means that every Monday morning you'll receive an email with a link to my latest post. And if you like the podcast, why not write a review and become a subscriber to that too, which you can easily do on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your other favorite RSS feed manager. Until next time, I'm Peter Mahler. Thanks for listening.